For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is The Fullness of Israel, The Fullness of Israel, Romans chapter 11, verses uh, 11 through 15. So this morning, we're back in our ongoing exposition of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. And in considering the objections raised by Israel's apostasy and Israel's unbelief in chapters 9 and 10, Paul now raises an important question in Romans chapter 11. Has God then cast away his people? Has God cast away his people? And frankly, brothers and sisters, there are more ways than one that this text applies to us in our circumstances today. Has God then cast away his people? In light of Israel's rejection of her Messiah, in light of her sin, in light of her rebellion, in light of her disobedience, Israel has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel has refused the gospel of glad tidings. In light of Israel's rejection, has God rejected Israel? Has God cast away his people? Will God now in his judgment against Israel for their sin refuse mercy to the physical seed of Abraham? Paul answers emphatically. Paul answers in the strongest possible terms, certainly not, may it never be. What we gather from that, brothers and sisters, is that God is faithful to his word. God is uncompromisingly faithful to his promises. Verse 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. God will be faithful to the promise that he made to Abraham. So concerning the physical, theocratic nation of Israel, Paul's countrymen, according to the flesh, Although the larger portion of that people remains in unbelief, and although the vast majority of the Jews have rejected Jesus Christ and will perish in their sins, God has decreed, God has determined to set his distinguishing love upon a believing remnant. There is a spiritual Israel that exists within physical Israel. There is a true Israel to be distinguished from apostate Israel. Like Paul himself, Paul is representative of that remnant. Or like the 7,000 in the days of Elijah who had not bowed the knee to Baal, God has preserved for himself a people. God is faithful to his word. Though the vast majority of that, of unbelieving Israel, will be the objects of God's righteous justice, there will remain a small remnant, a small remnant of physical Israel who will be saved as the objects of God's astonishing mercy. Now, the ground of that distinction, the ground of the distinction between those two is what Paul refers to in our text as the election of grace. The salvation of that believing remnant is rooted and grounded in the eternal counsels of the Godhead, in the eternal decrees of God. It is rooted and grounded. It it originates within the infinite mind of God himself. And God himself has in love for his own sovereign good pleasure foreknown them. He has predestined them. He has called them. He has justified them. And he has glorified them through faith alone in his Son. 
It is an election in eternity, in eternity that distinguishes the remnant from the rest, that distinguishes the remnant from the remainder of apostate Israel. And it is an election, brothers and sisters, that is owing entirely to grace. It is owing to nothing within themselves. It is owing entirely to grace apart from any works of the law. So having explained then the origin, the existence of that believing remnant within the nation of Israel, Paul now turns in our text to explain the rest. It's the remnant and the rest. Verse 7, Israel has not obtained what it seeks. That physical, temporal, theocratic nation has not obtained the justifying righteousness before God that it sought after. Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect of God have obtained it and the rest were blinded. It's the remnant and the rest. There is a remnant according to the election of grace, a very small number. There were eight people on the boat. Brothers and sisters, eight people on the boat. There is the remnant and there is the rest. And the rest, all the rest are under the judgment of God according to the rejection of wrath. There is a remnant according to the election of grace and the rest are under under the judgment of God according to the rejection of wrath. In a judicial act of divine wrath, God renders them hardened. God renders them blinded. God renders them insensible to the proclamation of his gospel. He has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills, he hardens. Verse 8, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. This reality was a source of great sorrow, continual grief for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul desired the salvation of his countrymen. He desired their salvation. So the Apostle Paul mourned over this fact. But as we come to our text this morning, in spite of Paul's grief and sorrow over his countrymen, Paul is anything but hopeless. And why is Paul, in the midst of this difficult circumstance, why does Paul have hope? Because God delights to show mercy. Paul has hope in the person and in the character of God himself. God delights to show mercy when Moses wanted God to show him his glory. God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and God made all of his goodness pass before him. God proclaimed the glory of his name to Moses as one who delights to show mercy. God delights to show mercy. God is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. And Paul, Paul is aware that within the redemptive plans and purposes of God, Within those plans and purposes, there is a gracious saving purpose that lies behind Israel's judgment. In other words, Israel isn't judged by God for the sake of Israel's judgment alone. God does not, does not act arbitrarily. God is not capricious. God is not like the Allah of Islam in that sense. God has a purpose. God has a redemptive plan. And behind the judgment of Israel, there is a gracious saving purpose of God. That gracious saving purpose originating in the eternal counsels of the Godhead uh, in eternity. In, In explanation of that saving purpose, Paul then begins with a question in verse 11. I say then, verse 11, 
have they, have the Jews, have Paul's countrymen according to the flesh, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now think with me. In seeking a justifying righteousness through works of the law, the Jews had stumbled at the stumbling stone. They had stumbled over Jesus Christ and they have rejected the gospel. In the verses that we've considered so far to this point, in Romans 9, Romans 10, even in Romans 11, Paul has proven that their rejection is not complete. In their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, having stumbled at the stumbling stone, Paul has proven that their rejection is not complete. God has spared a believing remnant. But in the verses that comprise our text today, Paul proves that their rejection, not only is their rejection not complete, their rejection is not terminal. Their rejection is not fatal. Their rejection is not final. Their rejection is not permanent. So Paul then has given us a two-part answer then to his original question. His original question began the chapter in verse 1, has God cast away his people? Paul answers, absolutely not. God has not cast away his people whom he has foreknown. And God, uh, Paul then gives us a two-part answer to that original question. One, their rejection is only partial because God has saved a remnant. Two, their rejection is only temporary. Their rejection is not terminal. Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Israel has stumbled over the stumbling stone. That is an obvious fact. That stumbling came with devastating consequences. But is their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ such that there is no hope of recovery? Because that generation has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, generations after them have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, is that, does that rejection of the Lord Christ mean, or was it such that there's no hope of recovery? Does their unbelief now under the judgment of God mean that there is no hope for repentance, no hope for salvation? Paul is going to answer that question for us in our text. Now notice, Paul does not ask the question this way, did they stumble and fall? If Paul asked the question that way, did they stumble and fall? Well, the answer to that question would certainly have to be yes. It would certainly have to be yes. They stumbled and they fell. Israel certainly did. But Paul, Paul answers the question as he has before with certainly not. May it never be, God forbid. Paul's question is this in verse 11. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Right? What does Paul have in mind when he asks the question in that way? Paul is speaking, in asking the question that way, Paul is speaking of the final or terminal or fatal apostasy of Israel. And by answering the question in the negative, Paul is saying that the present unbelief, the present apostasy of the Jews does not mean that all hope is lost, that all hope is gone. Paul hopes in God that his Jewish countrymen, according to the faith, might be saved. As long as God provides for the gracious proclamation of the gospel, there is hope that a remnant might yet be saved. Amen? As long as there is the preaching of the everlasting gospel, there is hope that sinners will turn in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ and be saved from their sins. As long as the gospel is proclaimed, there is hope. I was thinking about that very point from this text as we're going through Revelation on Sunday nights. 
And in Revelation chapter 11, our text dovetailing in both chapter and in point, there will come a point in time when that proclamation ends. And at that time, the Lord Jesus Christ will come back in judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ will come back, will gather his own to himself, and will consummate the kingdom. That time is not now. There is a proclamation of the gospel. And while there is the proclamation of the gospel, there is hope. There is hope in the hearing of the gospel that the Jews, Paul's countrymen, Paul's brethren, according to the flesh, that they might turn to Christ in faith. And that even a remnant today might receive a justifying righteousness through faith alone and Christ alone, apart from any works of their own. And not only is there hope that God would continue to save a remnant of Jews under the preaching of the gospel today, there is a gracious purpose, a gracious, saving, redemptive purpose behind the stumbling and fall of Israel. Verse 11, but rather through their fall to provoke them to jealousy Salvation has come to the Gentiles, and we have to ask why. Through their fall, in order to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has now come to the Gentiles. Now think about that. A similar concept to this was introduced to us in chapter 9. Turn to chapter 9, flip the page back. Chapter 9, verse 22. That concept is introduced to us here. Verse 22, what if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So God bears long. If you remember that text with me, God bears long. He demonstrates tremendous forbearance with those whom he hardens. Tremendous forbearance with sinners. And he does so in pursuit of a greater purpose. He does so in pursuit of a twofold purpose. One, that he might demonstrate his wrath and display his power on vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and two, a greater purpose yet, that he might display the riches of his glory in the salvation of the vessels of mercy. So in that, God puts his judgment, as it were, into the service of his mercy. God puts his wrath, as it were, into the service of his mercy. Verse 23, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. God endures the vessels of wrath, not only for a greater display of his wrath and power, but ultimately for an exceedingly great display of the riches of his glory, the riches of his mercy, the riches of his grace, the exceeding kindness which he intends to show his own, pour out upon his own through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God employs great forbearance with sinners in the service of his mercy and tremendous patience with the vessels of wrath becomes the means by which God pursues the greater purpose of displaying his glory on the vessels of mercy. So back in Romans 11, if you think about that, right? God could have wiped Pharaoh off the face of the earth in an instant, but God endured him with much patience in pursuit of a greater end. God could have destroyed apostate Israel in a moment as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, but God endured them with tremendous patience in pursuit of a greater purpose. God employed great patience with sinners in the service of his saving purpose. Verse 11, 
I say then, have they, have the Jews stumbled that they should fall forever? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy in pursuit of a greater purpose, salvation has come to the Gentiles. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So God has a purpose then in the present unbelief and apostasy of Israel. God has a purpose. Through their fall, better translated here, through their sin or through their their trespass, through their disobedience, God would save the Gentiles. The word translated fall there is a different Greek word than the one translated fall at the beginning of the verse. Two different Greek words, but they translated them the same. Two different Greek words. Think of the words, if I read it to you, uh, with their definitions. Think of the words in terms of their definition. Verse 11. Have the Jews stumbled that they should suffer ruin. That's what that means. Have the Jews stumbled that they should suffer ruin. Absolutely not. But through their transgression, through their disobedience to the gospel, through their rejection of Jesus Christ, G.T. Shedd says, through their culpable and punishable act, through their transgression to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And the New Testament gives us multiple examples of this very principle at work in the spread of the gospel. We see this principle. We see this principle at work in the spread of the gospel throughout the New Testament. Turn with me to Matthew 21. Let me give you an example of this. This principle is seen, for example, in the parable of the wicked vine dressers. In the parable of the wicked vine dressers from Matthew 21, a landowner plants a vineyard and builds it out, all right? He does everything that must be done to care for this vineyard. Then he leases that vineyard to vine dressers and he leaves, the owner leaves for a far country. When it's time for the harvest, he sends his servants to receive its fruit. And these wicked vine dressers beat one, they kill one and they stone another. So he sends them more. He sends them more servants. He, and they do the same to those servants. Finally, he says, I'm gonna send my son. I'm going to send my son. Surely they will listen to him. And what do those wicked vine dressers do with, their, do with his son? They do the same to him. They cast him out and they kill him also. Verse 40, verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those wicked vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. But Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. We've looked at that text in Paul's own quotations in Romans 10 and 11, right? We've looked at this text and we know that foundation laid in Zion that God has laid is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And all those who place their trust in him will not be ashamed. Verse 43, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and it will be given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. 
and on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. The Jews had persecuted and killed God's herald of the gospel, heralds of the gospel. God rose up early and sent them, and they they killed one, they beat one, and stoned another. He sent his own son, and they did the same. That has led to an invitation to the kingdom being extended to the nations. In other words, through Israel's transgression, through Israel's rejection, through their fall, an invitation to the kingdom has been extended to the nations. An invitation to the kingdom through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ has been offered to the Gentiles, so to speak. In the servant songs of Isaiah, foretelling this coming one, the son of God, Isaiah 49 verse three says this. And he said to me, he said to this servant of the Lord, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, the servant said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, now think with me, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. Indeed, he says to me, the servant says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to raise up one people from among the nations. It is too small a thing. It's too small a thing to restore the preserved ones of Israel. In other words, God is in pursuit of a greater purpose. God is in pursuit of a much greater purpose. I also will give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. God intends to fulfill that purpose through the unbelief and disobedience, through the trespass of the Jews. God is in pursuit of a greater purpose. Israel didn't fall, and Israel isn't judged merely for the sake of pouring out his judgment upon Israel. God is in pursuit of a greater purpose. God delights to show mercy. God is in pursuit of a people for his name from among all the nations for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that, that prophecy fulfilled. We see an example of the principle at work in Matthew 21 in a specific example from Acts 13. Turn with me to Acts 13. We see this principle at work in Acts 13. Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel in Antioch at Pisidia. And in verse 42, they've preached the gospel. In verse 42... As was Paul's practice, Paul went into the synagogues first, right? Verse 42, so when the Jews went out of the synagogues, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Paul preached to the Jews, the Gentiles are standing out as Jesus comes out of the synagogue begging, God, please, Lord, please preach this gospel to us. Verse 43, now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. 
But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas, in that environment, right, in that circumstance, Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. You see that principle at work, don't you? From Acts 13, right? Their rejection opens up the spread of the gospel to Gentile nations. Verse 48, now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, they glorified the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. This is the providence of God. It is amazing how God directs the affairs of history. Uh, This is the providence of God. Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel to the Jews and the Jews reject it. Paul recognizes in that circumstance, Paul who in himself saw himself as one following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ in fulfilling that work of God's called servant. Paul recognizes that rejection of the gospel on the part of the Jews and he recognizes in that the purpose of God to save the Gentiles in fulfillment of that word that he spoke to the prophet Isaiah. And the rejection of the gospel by the Jews facilitated, verse 49, facilitated the spread of the gospel throughout all the region. We see God's plan at work, God executing his decrees by his providence, saving a people for his name. Back in Romans 11, Romans 11, Paul goes forth to the Jews first to preach the gospel. Under the preaching of the gospel, the Jews become enraged with envy, become enraged with jealousy. Paul understands from the scriptures that he should then turn and preach it to the Gentiles. And God abundantly blesses the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles and Gentiles through faith in Jesus Christ are pouring into the church. And the Jews become more and more enraged, driving them out of that region driving them to the next region, and so it goes again. That pattern leading to the spread of the gospel throughout the entire Gentile world. And you can see, as you read through the book of Acts, for example, how uh, often in Paul's ministry, uh, his travel is directed by angry Jews. (laughs) They're they're following him around everywhere he goes. He can't get away. Uh, Verse 11. I say then, have the Jews stumbled that they should fall, that they should fall forever? Certainly not. But through their fall, through their transgression, to provoke them to jealousy in pursuit of a greater purpose, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Quoting Isaiah in Acts 28, Paul says to the Jews, hearing you will hear, and shall not understand. Seeing, you will see, and you will not perceive. In other words, God has given them a spirit of stupor. Therefore, Paul says, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And they're going to hear it by the grace of God. They're going to hear it by the providence of God. Now, 
is through the salvation of Gentiles. And in verse 11, you think about verse 11 with me, it's through the salvation of Gentiles that God then accomplishes yet another purpose. God has rejected Israel. God has poured out his judgment upon Israel for their transgression. It's through their rejection that God has intended the salvation of the Gentiles. But beyond the salvation of the Gentiles, God is at work in the accomplishment of a yet another purpose. God intends through the salvation of the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy. By the inclusion of Gentiles in the covenant blessings given to the seed of Abraham, God intends to provoke the Jews to a zeal for those same blessings. The Jews might say to themselves, those are our blessings. Those are our blessings. And so God intends to provoke the Jews to a zeal for those blessings, blessings that were promised to their own forefathers. And we saw that principle conveyed in Paul's quote from Deuteronomy 32, where in Romans 10, Paul said, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Dr. Murray says, uh, paradoxically, that the unbelief of Israel is directed to the restoration of Israel's faith. <laughs> That's an interesting thought, right? The unbelief of Israel is directed to the restoration of Israel's faith. And the fall, the fall of Israel is directed to their reclamation. And we see that. This is, that's the point that Paul is making here. Israel's transgression is directed to Israel's restored faith. Israel's fall is directed to Israel's reclamation. The means through which God accomplishes that good purpose is the salvation of the Gentiles who have been grafted in. We're going to talk about that. Have been grafted in and that act of God provoking the Jews to envy. That principle is fulfilled through Gentiles receiving the covenant promises. If you think about that in an application of that point, a jealousy isn't a bad reason for repentance and faith, right? Jealousy isn't necessarily a bad reason. It's right here in God's plans and purposes for Israel. And if you think about how that works, if you will, um, the ungodly are persuaded by the life of the godly. And we know that. When, when we preach the gospel to people, we use words. You know, that, that, um, that foolish notion that we should go and preach the gospel without words, that's ridiculous. The Bible, we're, we're to go and be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, we're to use our words. But do witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ witness without words? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. In Revelation chapter 11, for example, We'll get to that text here soon. In Revelation chapter 11, when the witnesses, when the witnesses are killed, their dead bodies are lying in the street and their enemies gloat. They rejoice with glee because their dead bodies are lying in the street. Not even, not even enough um, respect, not even enough dignity to bury them, right? <laughs> They're laying in the street. Their witness has ended but their testimony continues. And that is, that is the truth of God's people throughout history. Those martyrs who were burnt at the stake, their 
testimonies preach to us today, right? They're still speaking. <laughs> Although dead, he still speaks, <laughs> Hebrews, <laughs> Hebrews says, right? So Christians, how they conduct themselves, even how they conduct themselves through great trial, through great adversity, Christians witness, Christians testify. When those two witnesses in Revelation 11 are killed, their witness lasts and endures. How are Christians to conduct themselves? With love, with charity, with faith, with joy, with hope. We see it in the Psalms of David, David being crushed, crushed, and yet responding with faith in the Lord, with joy and hope in his Lord, certainly not with some empty fleeting happiness in his current circumstances. That's not what that's speaking of. But joy in the Lord, hope in the Lord. The Christian who adorns the gospel with their chaste conduct accompanied with fear can win a sinner without a word. First Peter 3, the gospel must be preached with words. But your life, your life preaches even when you don't open your mouth. And that is a tremendously powerful witness. It's through this, this gracious purpose of God that Paul anticipates a day of God's grace to the Jews. Considering the Jews, back in Romans chapter 11, verse 12, considering the Jews, verse 12, now if their fall or their trespass is riches for the world, if this principle has been used of God to bear fruit among the Gentiles and Gentiles now are being saved through faith in his son. And if their failure or their loss is riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Now think with me, Paul is setting in contrast the present condition of unbelieving and apostate Israel. He's setting that in contrast with their future condition. But he's also, and even doing that, he's setting the, the present state of things as it pertains to the Gentiles and Gentiles pouring into the church. He's setting that in contrast with the future state of Gentiles pouring into the church. If their, their trespass is riches for the world, and if their loss is riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness will be riches for the world and riches for the Gentiles, you see? Notice with me, verse 12, Paul speaks of their current condition in contrast with their future condition. If their current trespass, their current loss, their current disobedience is riches for the nations, then by contrast, Paul speaks of their future in terms of their fullness. What does Paul mean by the use of that word fullness? Paul is referring to the fullness of Israel as a people. Now think with me. The fall was theirs. The trespass was theirs. The loss was theirs. And their fullness is set in contrast to those. So fullness is set in contrast to their fall, their trespass, their loss. In other words, this word fullness must refer to a contrasting condition. 
Israel is presently and predominantly apostate and unbelieving. Their fullness then refers to a condition in which Israel will be predominantly believing. Okay? There are basically two ways to understand Paul's use of this word. Fullness might mean that God is simply going to continue saving a remnant of modern-day Jews. And that gradual salvation of a small number of believing Jews will continue to build until the end of the age. It's like this, um, a steady stream, right? A steady flow, albeit a small flow, a steady trickle, if you will. And when that gradual and incremental process continues, that gradual and incremental process will eventuate in their fullness when all of those who were elected by God will come to salvation in Jesus Christ. Or it means that, right? The word fullness is pointing to that. Or in reference to fullness, Paul is speaking of saving every Jew. All the Jews are going to be saved. And that's the way many dispensationalists today look at that text. There'll come a point in time when all the Jews, when verse 26, when all Israel will be saved. And what I'm submitting to you here with the use of that word fullness is that Paul is navigating a course between those two views, okay? In reference to fullness, Paul is speaking of an outpouring of grace on the Jews, no doubt. And that, that takes place, that outpouring of, God, of God's grace upon Paul's countrymen according to the flesh, that outpouring of God's grace takes place on a scale that is in direct contrast to their current unbelief, right? God is going to pour out his grace upon Israel on a scale that is in direct contrast to Israel's current unbelief. The fullness of the Jews is referring to an outpouring of God's grace upon the Jews in the same way that the fullness of the Gentiles, verse 25, is referring to an outpouring of grace upon the Gentiles. Both of them refer to a large number, right? Both of them refer to a large number. Paul has in mind a future day in which the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ will bear such fruit among the Jews that the number of believing Jews entering the kingdom will take place on a scale that is comparable to that of the Gentiles. The unbelieving, the number of believing Jews entering the kingdom will take place on a scale that is in direct contrast to the number of unbelieving Jews who are rejecting the gospel in Paul's own day. It makes sense? On a scale, it's going to take place on a scale that is in conspicuous or evident contrast to their previous state of unbelief. And with the fullness, with the fullness of both elect Jews, elect ethnic Jews and elect ethnic Gentiles, we see then in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, a fulfillment of all that God had planned and intended. A great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Paul does not mean by that word, fullness, that every single Israelite is going to be saved. Paul mourns the fact that a vast majority of Jews in his own day would perish in their sins. And it's true today. It's true today that a vast, vast majority of Jews will perish in their sins. What we know for a fact is that Jews will never be saved apart from the preaching of the gospel. Jews will not be saved. They cannot be saved apart from faith alone in Christ alone. One day, through the preaching of the gospel, God 
will ensure their fullness. Now, Paul then speaks of what this means for the Gentiles. Hang in there with me. Paul speaks of what this means for the Gentiles. Verse 13. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Paul acknowledges what God is doing in blinding Israel. Paul acknowledges the redemptive purpose of God in the unbelief of Israel. And Paul essentially says this, God's purpose is my purpose. God's aims are my aims. If this is the way that God is executing his decreed ends, then I am going to magnify my ministry. I'm going to labor in that pursuit by preaching the gospel to Gentiles. Every Gentile I can get in front of, I'm going to preach the gospel. Any one of those places where uh, Jesus Christ has not been preached, I'm going to go there and preach him. I'm going to magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. His ministry to the Gentiles isn't competing with his ministry to the Jews. His ministry to the Gentiles is in service of his ministry to the Jews. The more that God blesses Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, the more that ministry fuels Paul's hope for the salvation of his Jewish countrymen. Paul has hope. So Paul says, I magnify my ministry. And Paul's preaching of the gospel to Gentiles is intended to provoke the Jews to jealousy. It's one of the reasons that Paul continuously, continuously goes back to the text of the Old Testament scriptures to prove the point that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 15, for if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul just asserted in verse, in verse two that God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And here, Paul refers to them in verse 15 as being cast away. Again, in the text, two different Greek words are being used. The first in verse 1, verse 1 and 2, refers to God forcibly shoving them aside. God has thrown them aside with force. That particular word refers to loss or rejection, right? Loss or rejection. This word in verse 15 refers to loss or rejection. Notice the the contrast of that word in verse 15, cast away, loss or rejection. Notice that contrast with the word acceptance at the end of verse 15. For if they're being cast away or present rejection, if their present rejection is the reconciling of the world, if their rejection has borne fruit in the salvation of the Gentiles, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Matthew chapter 21, verse 43 from the parable of the wicked vine dressers. The Lord speaks of Israel's present unbelief. He says, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. But here, Paul is speaking of a future day of their acceptance, a day in which there will be an outpouring of God's mercy and grace, a day that is in evident contrast with their current condition, a day in which the outpouring of God's grace upon the Jews will result in nothing less than life from the dead. A day in which Israel will no longer be characterized by loss. A day in which Israel will no longer be characterized by trespass and rejection, but rather a day in which Israel will be characterized by covenant blessings. 
and life from the dead. And all of this, it's important to remember that Paul's not speaking of national, theocratic, temporal Israel. Paul is not talking politics, right? Paul is not talking, he's not speaking of a political state. Paul is speaking of the Jews being included once again in the commonwealth of spiritual Israel. Paul is speaking of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like Paul, we're going to see that as we work through the text. Like Paul, we're not being called to support some unbelieving and apostate physical national nation. We're not being called to that. We're called to the preaching of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're called to the preaching of that gospel to the Jewish people when we encounter them. And that is the only means whereby all Israel may be saved. It's the only means whereby all Israel may inherit the blessings promised to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, whose seed you are through faith in Jesus Christ. It's only through that means that Israel will be saved. So we're not called to lost and idol to support a lost and idolatrous nation. We're called to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and we're to preach that as witnesses for him until the day comes when our witness is silenced. And it will be his witness through his people that will endure beyond that day. We gotta preach the gospel, amen? Amen, pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the kind instruction that you continuously give us from your word. We're very grateful for that. Grateful, Lord, for your spirit who helps us, who illumines our understanding, who applies these truths to our heart and mind, that we can meditate on your goodness, that we can meditate on your faithfulness, that we can meditate on your compassion, that with Paul we can be in awe of all your redemptive plans and purposes, knowing that you're not arbitrary, but knowing that you work all things together for good of those who love you, that you work all things according to the counsel of your own will, and you are bringing about great, glorious purposes for the sake of your own name, for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're grateful to you, Lord, grateful that you have revealed these things to us, that you have allowed us behind the veil, as it were, to see these grand purposes. And we worship you and we praise you. Your ways past finding out. It is glorious in our sight and we thank you for it. Please help us, Lord, to endure. Please preserve us and cause us to persevere. Help us to be faithful to your gospel. Bear fruit among us. Lord, you have graciously promised to prune us because you have graciously promised to conform us into the image of your son. And Lord, in graciously pruning us and cutting away dead leaves, dead branches, and clearing off the dross, God, we pray that you would fulfill your promise to us. You would fulfill your word to us to make us a fruitful people. Uh, give us fruit, Lord, for the sake of your name, not for the sake of our own glory, for the sake of our own pride, but for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ who died and gave himself for us. Bear fruit among us. Cause our rod to bud for the sake of your own name, for the sake of your own glory. Pray this in Christ's name.
thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.